0: Now our scripture reading today comes from the book of Acts, chapter two, verses 36 through 47. You can follow along with us on the screen or on your, uh, your Bible or um, device. Let's start with chapter, chapter 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day attending the temple together And breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord.
1: I was finishing up my undergraduate degree in college when a mentor friend of mine had invited me. Uh, to attend a Bible study he was getting together uh, that consisted of men who were on the cusp of some really big changes in their lives. Uh, what, he, what I wasn't aware of before I attended it was that the Bible study had uh, what I will say a, a somewhat charismatic bent to it. I also realize that for many of you, you don't know what I mean when I say that. And you have to realize that there's a large portion of worldwide Christianity uh, that we might refer to as Pentecostal. By which I mean that they insist that any genuine claim of Christian faith has to be accompanied by miraculous manifestations of the Holy Spirit. It can range anything from speaking in mysterious heavenly languages to miraculous healings wrought by the Holy Spirit. And of course, in this view, you haven't if you haven't experienced these, these exhibitions, then you actually should doubt if you are even a Christian at all. But the study that I was involved in was what I would refer to as a sort of a milder version of that. The, the charismatic tradition in which this Bible study um, stood insisted on, ne- never actually insisted on these miraculous expressions, but they certainly longed for and prayed for evidence that the Holy Spirit had shown up during our studies. Now, I confess to you that all of this was uh, fun and games for a young college student until the evening came when the men requested to gather around me, lay their hands on me, so that I would receive, quote, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It sounded innocuous, anyway. I mean, who wouldn't want to pray for the Holy Spirit to be a part of their lives more so, right? Well, it didn't take long for me to realize that the prayer time that we were having was indeed something that these men very much hoped that I would begin to speak in an angelic prayer language, Uh, even as they began to chatter in certain sounds that decidedly were not English at least. And of course, at the risk of being anticlimactic, nothing miraculous ever happened to me that evening. And I went home though, feeling somewhat encouraged. I remember having a sensation of like longing to go to seminary in the next couple of months and know God better but I still was a little self-conscious, you know, that I'd let these men down, right? Maybe, I, was a, maybe I, I missed something that evening. I went to lunch with my mentor in the weeks afterwards, and I remember him asking me about the experience and all these questions. And at the end of the time, he said, look, don't, don't be self-conscious. He said, you know when the Spirit shows up because you see the fruits of the Spirit. And the fact that you've got a longing to know God better in the days ahead, should be considered a legitimate baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I was of course quite relieved by that. But I do think it leads us into a question into our book of Acts and it's this, what are the things that we associate with the coming of the Holy Spirit? How do you know when he's shown up? And my guess is it's probably not what you think. Look, we've been looking this fall at how Jesus can continue to bring this powerful revolution of soul and society while he's not physically here. And we answered that question last week most vividly by what happened at what we now call Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. But today, though, we find out how we know when the Spirit has arrived. And the answer very simply is, is that he leaves awake. That is, there is a trace A discernible footprint, if you will, of knowing that the Spirit had been there. And so what I'm hoping is, is rather than get distracted by what I believe are miraculous manifestations of an inaugural age of the Spirit, I think it's much better to see what it was that happened in the life of the early church and simply compare it to what we have today. So here's the question. Are we, as Christ Presbyterian Church, a Spirit-filled church? Well, I think in our text says there are at least four things that lead us in that direction. Number one, there's powerful preaching, careful study, shared resources, and evangelistic uh, worship. Let's take that first one, powerful preaching. This is one of the weird characteristics of the book of Acts. Most often when you see these crazy uh, expressions of the Spirit, uh, that they oftentimes come on the heels of preaching a sermon, believe it or not, which I find surprising. Because when you sort of associate uh, the Spirit's coming with all of the magic tricks, you're a little disappointed when you think that he shows up (laughs) after a boring old sermon, right? And of course, we only had time to read the last sentence of Peter's very famous sermon there. But I invite you this afternoon to go back and read it because you'll notice, I think, at least two things that made Peter's preaching powerful. The first is this. His sermon is preoccupied by the fact of the uh, resurrection. At least he believes it's a fact. Verse 24 says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He then goes on to do this whole exegesis argument out of uh, Psalm 16. But here's my point. The Spirit's work in Peter's life did not cause him to say to people, hey, you know what? I had an experience. Uh, I had something happen to me, and it was really interesting, and I want to tell you about it. Rather, what he does is he begins to reason with them. He takes these central truths of the Christian faith, not only that, but he appeals to the Old Testament scriptures as source material to demonstrate his premise. He didn't stand up and say, hey, look, we just had this intense experience and it was really good for us. It might not be true for you, but it really sort of scratched where we itched. That's not what he says. Peter is coming to give reasons, not opinions, He's not inviting people to take a leap into the dark and into the absurdity of of, of this truth of what he's claiming. What he's saying is, is we all saw him. It is a matter of public record that Jesus rose from the dead. The tomb is empty and you all know it. He even would go on to say that I can produce 500 witnesses that have seen him since that time. So what does that mean? Well, it means that you know that the spirit is moving when you begin to grapple with a truth that prior did not fit within your way of looking at the world. Does that make sense? Look, because if a man rose from the dead, I'm willing for the sake of a skeptic in the room this morning to to put a big if over it. That may be if to you, but if he did, you have to pay attention to him. (laughs) He cannot be ignored. He cannot be brushed off. You have to find a place in your mind to fit that in there. Which sort of brings me to the second interesting part about Peter's sermon, and that is the effect that it had on people was to completely undo them. Look at verse 37. It says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? The second feature of Peter's preaching was that people were not getting from it sort of dry information. Why? Because he was implicating them in the crucifixion of Jesus. Look at how his sermon ends in verse 36. It's an accusation. This Jesus whom you crucified. Look, Why did he do that? Well, you'll know that the Spirit is present when the information that the preacher is giving becomes more than just data points. Suddenly it becomes personal. You start to think to yourself, I I think he's talking about me. And so what happens is, is when the spirit comes, he brings a sense, first of all, if it's according to what happened to these people, a sense of being implicated, a sense of, of needing repentance. You'll know it's the spirit when you feel yourself being softened you feel yourself being humbled. You, you, can, you can feel the machinery of your heart turn to where it's like, I've got to change. It begins to make you receptive. That's what it means when it says they were cut to the heart in verse 37. And so the question before we move on to the next point is, has that ever happened to you? Do you have an analog for that experience? Because the Spirit's first fruit is a willingness to admit that you are implicated in the struggle that is your life. First, the Holy Spirit does not walk us into any experience when he does not say, okay, 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 how did you contribute to your present distress? That's the first thing, and what it guarantees is, is everybody comes in on the same level. We come in saying, I don't know, but I'm open, Lord, tell me where I might have missed this. Only the Spirit can enable that posture. And the crazy thing is, is it happens in preaching. So that's the first manifestation of spirit, powerful preaching. Secondly, though, you begin to see that what these people manifest is careful study. Look, after all this goes down, the first thing that Luke records them doing in verse 42 is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, I realize for many of you, you're new to this church, and I realize we're Presbyterians, and you begin to roll your eyes and think, well, here we go. We're going to do another dry, dusty doctrinal discussion here. It's not cool, I think, in our day to talk about theology anymore, especially in American evangelicalism. And for some people, they're like, you know, we can't agree on anything, so why bother? Other people are offended when they think, well, who are you to think you've got the answers to all these Bible questions? I get it. But commentator, Methodist commentator, William Willimon, I think is right when he says this. He says, the church is not supposed to drift from one emotional outburst to the next to try to resuscitate Pentecostal on a, a Pentecost on a weekly basis. Rather, the church moves immediately to the task of teaching so that it can keep itself straight about what it is and what it's supposed to be about. In other words, he's saying that the Spirit's first move is to give you theology. Why? Because you're not going to understand what he's doing without it. C.S. Lewis is the most helpful in this regard. In his, in his obviously landmark uh, book, Mere Christianity, Lewis compares Christian theology to a map. You ever heard him talk about this? F- take, for instance, let's say for a second that I looked at you and said, I have been to the base of Mount Everest. And you were amazed, wow, base of Mount Everest, how did that go? And, of course, they're say, well, understand, I mean, I visited there on Google Earth. You would think that I was ridiculous for having said so, right? At the same time, though, you would also know intuitively that I probably would never actually find my way to Mount Everest Base without a map. Okay, do you see that's what Christian theology is? In other words, we say to ourselves that just because I know a lot about God, just because I found a place on a map is not the same thing as knowing God. But here's the deal, you're certainly not going to find God unless you are guided by doctrine. For some people, the experience that they long for of God, we we wouldn't be known if it came and slapped them in the face. But look, notice another feature of this study, because it says in verse 42 that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Look, for a second, who exactly were the apostles? Well, Peter says it in verse 32 when he says, and we are all witnesses, Now think about this for a second. These individuals uniquely saw the risen Jesus and they came, uh, and Jesus came to them very exclusively with a very specific authorization. And that authorization was for you, these apostles, to disseminate his truth into the world. And so what Jesus ended up doing was giving them exclusive rights to do that. And this is the reason why the whole of the early church As soon as the apostles died out, nobody rose up and said to themselves, you know what, I'm really not sure about what those apostles said. I think we should totally rethink this for a new day, for a new modern era where we're much more enlightened. No. What they did was, is they collected all of these people's writings into one place, they canonized it, and suddenly it became what you and I call the New Testament. Right? Right? And they continue to appeal to it. That's why in Ephesians 2.20, Paul can say that our faith was, quote, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. I mean, look, in a foundation, if the foundation of your house moves, the whole thing is going to come down. Foundations have to be unmoving. They have to be rigid. And so, therefore, whenever the church was unsure about their view of a certain issue, what did it do? It didn't get creative. It went back to the apostles' teaching it went back to the Bible. This is the reason why in Jude, verse three, Jude says that he's contending for the faith once delivered to the saints. This is what these new believers did. They turned to it and they loved it and they dove themselves into Bible study. Never thought about that, did you? (laughs) When you start thinking about how I know when the Holy Spirit has shown up in my life, you didn't think about him sending you to a Bible study to dive in to, to, but wait a minute, say that again? Explain this one more time. How do we believe about that? What did the apostles said? So thirdly, what we find is we find also not only that, but also a sense of shared resources among each other. In other words, the next thing the Spirit does is he causes people to rethink their stuff, their possessions. I realize that when you get to verse 45, in our day you can get a little bit nervous when you read that verse, look at it again. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Whoa, 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 whoa. Sounds a little too much like that socialism I've been reading about that all the liberals want to sort of bring about in my government. But I really do think that you'd be wrong to project it on this text for this simple reason. What happens in real socialism is sharing of resources is mandated at the point of a gun. But these people actually had something entirely different that was motivating them to share their goods with one another. And you know what it was? It was their fellowship. (laughs) It was their joy of their togetherness. And that fellowship was not only the result of their giving, but it was also the cause of their giving. Look at verse 42 again. It says that they devoted themselves to the fellowship. And that's a very weird way to talk, even by Greek standards. You don't put a definite article in front of that because we don't talk about it that way. Do you remember, though, this summer when we went through our series in spiritual formation, we talked about this idea of the deep oneness, this koinonia that results when we're bonded together in Christ? Now what we find out is not only do we get that bond, but that bond then both creates shared resources, which reinforces our fellowship. I love this. The Spirit comes to us, and you start to feel deeply connected by people. But because I'm bound to them, I realize that I can no longer talk about my stuff as if it's mine only. Um, Think about when you got married. That's a great illustration. We got married, right? And suddenly, when you looked and said, well, no, you can have that, but you can't have that because that's mine. You had to have a conversation now, didn't you? What does it mean for us to be married? What does it mean for us to share resources? We had to have conversations about that. But what you have in this early Christian is this reciprocal experience of feeling together, sharing their resources. But here's the thing the more they shared their resources, the deeper their fellowship became. That's what's so beautiful about this. When I was in campus ministry, I used to do everything I could to encourage guys, especially. For whatever reason, it was much more valuable for guys than it was for, for the women in my ministry. But I would always tell the guys to go serve at a summer camp. My favorite was Alpine Camp for Boys, no surprise there. For whatever reason, Dick O'Farrell and Glenn Brazil just had a great way and a skill to, to help bring transformation to the young men, for, they, not only whom they were serving, but the men that were doing the serving as well. I do remember one counselor in particular who was told the day before his campers were to arrive that one of his campers suffered from something that the sort of medical information referred to as night terrors. Well, this counselor had no idea what night terrors were, but it certainly didn't sound good. But of course, sure enough, when he was awoken in the middle of the night by blood-curdling screams, he got a quick education on exactly what those were. But the crazy thing is, he would say that as he went on that summer, he began his sort of work with this child in kind of a duty way, like, well, I guess it's my job. But over time, he really sort of started associating with the kid. He loved the kid. He really wanted to succeed. And he would come back and say, by the end of the summer, (laughs) he and the kid were really good buddies sort of bonded them together. Now, what was it that happened? What happened was is friendship bonds are not the result of just commonality among Christians. This is so tragic in our day. Love and care between Christian people is produced in many ways because I paid for the love and care. Think about the first time, well, I'll use my own story. When I was in, I said this before, when I was in college, I paid my way through undergrad uh, by stringing tennis rackets at a local tennis club in Memphis. And I do remember that one little detail that I missed that my accountant father informed me of after my first year of working there, that as a tennis racket stringer at the racket club in Memphis, um, I was self-employed and that I owed taxes at the end of that year. $2,400 I owed. Now ask me how much i had saved for that tax burden. Zero, right? You know what was strange after I found out that I got that bill that I had to pay? The news became interesting, right? I wanted to know what the government was going to do with that money of mine, right? That I had earned and I had wanted. (laughs) I paid attention in a word. What did I do? I began to care. Okay. This is what happens when the spirit descends because the spirit comes along and says, I'm going to unite you to these people. And so we're not going to talk about my stuff. We talk about our stuff. And in that way, it's as if he kind of demotes the, the, this defensiveness that I have about my material goods. I tried to think of some applications about this. And I remember how, how unnerved I got a number of years ago when I was living in Memphis, when, when my wife and I had a, uh, a weed eater stolen from our garage and it completely lost my mind over how dare someone. It's a $50 weed eater that I went and picked up the next afternoon. There's a sense in which the spirit comes and keeps me from coming unglued at the small little offenses that happen against my stuff. It also means that we don't sort of moan and groan on the inside being like, oh, great, another missionary, here at my thing, looking for money so we can go preach the word. We don't do that, do we? We come along and say, no, no, God has led us to look at my stuff as if it's ours. But there's an empowerment for that, is there not? And that leads me to the fourth and final evidence of the Spirit. And that is that we begin to see evangelistic worship taking place. Verses 41 and 47 make it very clear that one of the more dramatic qualities of this sort of burgeoning Jesus community was that it was growing. Look at at verse 41. They were added added that day about 3,000 souls, and then 47, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In other words, when the Spirit showed up, he created a highly evangelistic community. They were very magnetic. They were an attractive group of people. People, when they were around them, felt drawn to them. There was an enthrallment that caused them not only to investigate their claims, but actually to, to join their merry band after they did. So the question is for us, 2,000 years on, how do you account for that? Now look, don't give the Sunday school answer at the beginning, right? Well, the Holy Spirit did it, less. I know, I know. But what means did he use to do so? And this is where we get lost because you've got to look at the context, Because what you find in verse 42 is that, yes, they listened to the preaching and the teaching, but they also enjoyed, quote, the breaking of bread and the prayers. Did you notice that? There's that definite article again right there before those words. What that means is is it was a more formal the prayers and more formal the breaking of bread. In other words, what they're saying was the thing that drew people in were the stated, planned, public services of worship that the apostles were putting on. Not only that, verse 47 says, they spent their time while they were together praising God, the result of which is that they, quote, found favor with all the people. Are you seeing the point? The Bible assumes that public worship is what's going to draw people in to becoming Christians. That was the undeniable pattern of these early believers, but I find it to be so counterintuitive in our world today We're so lost in this topic. You know, I mentioned this summer about C.S. Lewis saying that in order to really enjoy something, you have to tell somebody about it. You remember this? You really haven't enjoyed the thing unless you get to praise it. When the rebels win, there's something about the beauty of the thing, (laughs) I didn't say the, the rarity of the thing, the beauty of the thing that makes you want to grab somebody and say, did you see that play last night? But the talking about it is the part of the joy because beautiful objects demand praise. In other words, the joy you get from a beautiful object must get out. You have to praise anything that you find fascinating, anything that you find exciting, anything that you find joyful so much so that you don't get the joy until it utters itself. It has to be conveyed. Someone has to look at one point and say like, you know what? I think you're right. That's amazing. Look, think of it this way. You're always praising something. Anything in which you sort of take delight demands a large portion of your conversation with your friends. You might talk about your summer vacation. You might talk about that new boat that you got. You might talk about this fantastic party I had last week. Regardless, you're being evangelistic about anything that you are praising. Because if it's not shared, it's not fun. So one of the great tragedies, I think, of modern American Christianity is the fact that our fellowship has only become to be known as an affinity group. You know, we hang together because we're a voting block or or, or, or an affiliated socioeconomic class or, God forbid, a racial enclave. But that has never been the mark of Christian fellowship. Christian fellowship has always been on the basis of the joy that we discovered in the gospel. That is the constituting nature of our friendships. Wait a minute. You you discovered that Jesus loves screw-ups too? Me too. That's the reason why we're friends. And here's the crazy thing. Mass conversions were a result of the praising. People were converted by praise. Not praise songs, but by us praising the thing that we found delight in. Okay, look. Don't miss the point. The way... If I have people in my life that I long to see come to Christ, to be converted, if I want to be an effective evangelist, then they have to see me worshiping. Now, I would actually argue that this form of evangelism is infinitely more effective than the forms of evangelism that we think of when we think of that word these days. I would argue that in our day, evangelism is rather hyper-focused on what I'll refer to as your decision. That is, it's the desire to get you to pray a prayer. It's a desire to get you to walk an aisle at the end of a church service or perhaps a religious retreat. It's a desire to come and meet with a minister, after which you would say, I became a Christian. Do you see what all that's aiming at, though? There's a sense in which modern evangelistic techniques are way absorbed with the human will. My decision-making mechanism, we think that evangelism is sort of the memorization of a a packaged presentation of truths so that hopefully we can find the courage to confront someone with them so that they can pray a prayer, make a commitment, sign a card, whatever, and become a Christian. But look, if there's anything that we see the Spirit working through here, it's the best evangelistic tool that we could possibly have is to invite them to church. (laughs) My friend would never sort of come to a church. Well, you know what? Don't over, don't, first of all, don't write them off. And maybe there's something we need to be doing to change the way in which people come into our spaces. But look what it says. In verse 42, it says these people broke bread together. I love that thought. Even as they came before the Lord's Supper, as we're just about getting ready to do, and, and they started eating Jesus' body and blood. I guarantee people had questions about that. But when they saw the joy In people's faces as they said, let me explain to you. (laughs) Let me explain to you what this means. Let me tell you what's beneath all this. Suddenly, they came to Christ. So the the, the process of evangelism is more about getting people into the places where the Spirit works. Where is that? Well, by getting into a, a body of committed, believing people. Come be a part of our fellowship. don't have to be a Christian to come and enjoy the richness of our fellowship that we have here. Who knows, you might learn something along the way. We devote ourselves together to keeping straight about what this fellowship is and what it's about by studying doctrine. We make absolutely sure that none of us has any material needs that I can help with so that we can sort of bear that out. It's not just theoretical uh, uh, help that we give to people. But fourthly, and most importantly, we start praising we simply start to talk about the things that overjoy us. Yes, Randall and the rest of the musicians are going to help us through that formally here in just a few minutes, but it's also in our conversations. It's in the things that blew our minds, the new truths that we learned that we never thought of. That's what we're bringing. And suddenly people are drawn, they're curious. They spend time around us. And you know what? They see us navigate really, really difficult conflicts between us in a very different way in which they ever grew up seeing. They want it. They feel drawn in. And George, uh, uh, not George Herbert. I've lost his name. George, whatever, C.S. Lewis's mentor. It'll come to me later on after the sermon's over when it doesn't matter. What he says is, is he says that the whole, McDonald, George McDonald, I knew it would come to me. He says what's happened is, is the hound of heaven is nipping at their heels. That's how they know. Because they look in and they see something attractive. Something that they long for. What does it mean to be a spirit-filled church? It's got to be that. It's got to be that there was a draw. And something that would, that would make people long for it. So the question is then, who's in? <laughs> Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask for your graciousness over us. Father, that your spirit would fall upon us. And if nothing else would give us a glimpse that as we take of your body and your blood, whatever that means, we would do so with, a, with an explosive joy that people would simply look at us and say, what is that about? So Father, if you would be so good as to fall upon us in this place, and we know that there were miraculous things that happened in that day, but there are plenty of miraculous things that can happen while we are pulled back from the brink of despair in our own lives and the brinks of loneliness and difficulty that we face every day. So would you come and be kind to us by meeting with us? For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.